Well, this evening we're continuing on in this Advent series we've titled A Fresh Perspective on a Familiar Story. I know if maybe you're just visiting for the first time or you're not from a churchy background, maybe these stories aren't familiar at all, so I just want to give that caveat. It'll be a little bit more familiar tonight. Uh, but for some of you, this is, uh, this is old hat. Like how many Advents have, even as Letter Treats Covenant Church, this is our 13th Advent together. Uh, and for some of you, this is your 50th or 60th Advent, and you've heard a lot of these stories over and over again. And one of the, uh, I guess, the occupational hazards or, uh, uh, of rereading and rereading and rereading is that you think, ah, I already know all this. Uh, but let's open ourselves to how God might meet us in a fresh reading of his word, because however we were when we heard this last, we're different people today, we're different people right now. So let me open us in prayer, and then we'll dive right in. Lord Jesus, thank you for your word, and for your servant Matthew, who passed it down to us, uh, at least this part of this story. And thank you for the way that it is living and active, for the way that it can still reach us hundreds and hundreds, uh, almost 2,000 years later. And I do pray for a fresh hearing today, for an openness in our hearts and minds and a willingness on your part uh, to meet us in those spaces where we desperately need you. As you bless this reading and preaching of your word and also the hearing and receiving of that word. Amen. If you're able, I want to invite you to stand just to kind of get the blood flowing again. And uh, it always helps us to, to change our body position to make ourselves a little bit more aware. And I am in Matthew chapter 1, and I'm going to be preaching, uh, reading verses 18 through 25. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph... Before they came together, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. And Joseph, her husband, being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her, planned to send her away secretly. But when he had considered this, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife. For the child who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Now all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, Behold, a virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. And Joseph awoke from his sleep and did as the angel of the Lord commanded him and took Mary as his wife. But he kept her a virgin until she gave birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. The other night, Samara, my nine-year-old, and I had an evening to ourselves, and so we... Uh, made a frozen pizza, and <laughs> we watched the Nativity Story. I don't know if you've seen this. It's a 2006 film adaptation of the birth of Jesus. Um, and as in any dramatization, especially of the Joseph part of the birth narrative, you've got to take some, some creative license, right? Whether it's a big-budget movie or a simple church Christmas pageant, 
you have to take some license because Joseph does not say anything in the Bible. I don't know if you've ever noticed that. Like, we've got all the stuff about Joseph, but he doesn't get any lines. And so, like, if you're in a pageant and you get to play Joseph, it's like, wah, wah. Like, you don't get to say anything unless you make some stuff up. And in this film, you've got Oscar Isaac playing, playing Joseph. You've got to give Oscar Isaac lines, right? You just have to because he's such a good actor. So, anyway, there's creative license going on there. Um, my point in that is, like, on the surface, if you're just reading this passage in Matthew 1, it might appear that since he doesn't say very much or anything at all, it might appear that Joseph just isn't that important in the story. But, of course, that would be a huge mistake, a huge uh, mistaken assumption if we made that assumption. I think part of the reason that we might be tempted to make that assumption is because in this current cultural context that we live in, we're surrounded by people who put themselves out there. And some of you might feel that tension, especially you know if you're a teenager or, or whoever you are. I don't know what it is. I'm, I'm doing the ageism thing. But sometimes it, there's a temptation to feel like, if I'm not out there, does anyone know I'm alive? Out there in the digital universe, right? We have multiple platforms on our phones and computers where we can post a picture or a video or an opinion, even if it's half-cocked, it usually is, and it can go out there to the world. And there's a temptation that you've got to make yourself known or seen or heard to count or to matter. But I think that Joseph offers a fantastic model of resistance against the temptation to be seen and heard all the time. Joseph reminds us that it's more important, actually, than what we have to say or the way we appear on the outside. What's more important is one's character and their actual actions. In this short passage of Scripture, I want to bring some fresh perspective on the role of Jesus, the role of Joseph on the birth of Jesus and in particular, I'm going to emphasize how Joseph's story reveals the character of God and how God's character shapes our character. First, let, let me just set the scene. This is probably review to many of you, but just to kind of refresh us with what it might have been like for Joseph and Mary. Now, this story in Matthew 1, is from the perspective of Joseph. And it begins with a statement about his relationship to Mary. They are what's known as betrothed, right? Betrothal was a lengthy, binding relationship. It was legally binding. And in our culture, the equivalent, I guess, would sort of be engagement. But in our culture, engagement is kind of like a serious relationship with the ring on, right? You, you are planning to get married, and you've pledged yourself to each other, but kind of at any time, you could just back out, and you just give the ring back, and you, you know, you, you make amends, or you, you make some people mad because they were making plans, but it's not legally binding to be engaged in the United States of America in 2021, but to be betrothed to someone in the first century AD in Palestine as a Jewish person was legally binding, so this couple would have um, stayed apart physically. They would have lived in their parents' homes, or Mary, at least, in her parents' home, and Joseph might have been a bachelor on his own. Um, and they would have uh, related to each other for a year before coming together in a wedding and consummating that marriage. And what they're doing in that year is things like getting to know each other's family, getting to know each other, but always kind of chaperoned and supervised. 
Uh, they, they, people were not allowed to really be alone very much in that culture when you're opposite sex. And, and so what would happen is that, that Mary's family would give a dowry or a, a large sum of money or a thing of great value. We're not sure what her dowry was. And the reason for that would be uh, as a gift and a pledge of their relationship, but also if Joseph were to die, or if he were to leave and divorce her and leave her high and dry, she would at least have something to fall back on, some kind of material goods to live on. Because um, in that time and culture, women couldn't just go get a job um, and, and make income and money. There, there was no system for that. So there they are, betrothed to one another, doing regular stuff, making wedding plans and getting to know the in-laws and, and all of this kind of thing. And from Joseph's perspective, something very irregular happens. It comes to light that Mary is pregnant. And Joseph would sure would remember if he was a part of that. And he wasn't. And in this particular story, in this particular sermon, I just want to give the caveat that we're looking at it from Joseph's perspective, because that's what Matthew's giving us. This is incredibly difficult on Mary, incredibly difficult, in many ways more difficult on Mary. And when we get to Luke and different Advent series, we're gonna hit on that. It won't be this year, but we, we do it every other year. And so um, just hear that. This perspective is Joseph's perspective. And, and just try and guess or feel or empathize with how he might have felt. Betrayal, I mean, obviously that would be a feeling shamed, angry, right? Disappointed, broken inside, maybe feeling defective. Why would she do this to me? And I don't know if you've ever had this, but if you just think of how oppressive it feels when you get absolutely horrible news that alters your best laid plans. Does that happen to anyone? Like a bad medical diagnosis or a broken relationship or um, a job that you were banking on. Hey, we've got the new position. We're going to move. We're going to buy the new house, and then it falls through. I mean, just life, live long enough, that happens, and unfortunately, it happens to some of us more often than others, but you know what I'm talking about, like this deep-seated disappointment where your world, as you had imagined it, is not working out that way. What does Joseph do about this? From his perspective, the only explanation is that Mary has committed adultery because when you're betrothed and you're legally bound, it doesn't matter if you've never consummated the marriage, it's legally binding, and to have an extramarital affair or extra betrothal affair is legally adultery. That's the only option in Joseph's mind. Like, how could it be otherwise? So let's talk about Joseph's options as a first-century Jewish man who's known as a righteous man. For the average first-century Jewish man, there weren't options. I know that's, that's so foreign to us because we live in a land where we are full of options. But Joseph really didn't have any options. According to the dominant interpretation of God's law, Adultery required, required justice against the offender. And to make matters worse, 
worse. At that time, in the first century AD in Palestine, you're also occupied by Rome under Caesar Augustus, who himself made it illegal for the man not to press charges against a woman who committed adultery. It's crazy. So to be righteous, to be law-abiding, to be faithful to the interpretation of God's word as he understood it, Joseph would need to divorce Mary. Now, Mary may have tried to explain herself, but again, put yourself in Joseph's shoes. At that time in history, God had not spoken to a prophet for 400 years. And all of a sudden, God is speaking again through angels to a likely late teenage girl and said, I got you pregnant. What are the chances? So Joseph does what he thinks he has to do. As a righteous man, that means as a right-related man, Joseph seeks to obey the law of God in Deuteronomy 22 and Deuteronomy 24, and he's going to get a divorce. He's going to pursue that course of action with Mary. But there's two ways one could go about divorce at that time. First, you could do what most people would do, the most common way, which would be to take Mary to court. And the reason one would do that is because then she and her family would be publicly humiliated, and Joseph and his family would be honored and protect their honor. By making Mary, or taking Mary to court, Joseph would then be free legally to marry other women, and he would be clean of shame that might be associated with his connection to adultery. And, practically speaking, Joseph would get to keep the dowry. He and his family would inherit that money that was a pledge of Mary's honor. Now, what would happen to Mary is this. She would have to endure a, a, a humiliating, it would be intentionally humiliating, it would be a public trial, a hearing, and her family would be there and the whole community, and other moms would be taking their daughters by the ear and saying, this is what you don't do. That was the whole point of a hearing like this. There would be invasive public investigation, asking very detailed personal questions, and the worst part, at least in my mind, is an unclothing and likely a public physical investigation of things absolutely dehumanizing on purpose. By the way, none of that is in the Bible. This is people's interpretation of what to do as a way of making a point. Joseph's divorce would have been legally righteous by the letter of the law, and for a moment it might have even felt vindicating for him. Mary had brought shame on Joseph, and now Joseph could have his revenge or, or feel justified or feel vindicated. He could restore honor to himself and honor to his family name and just walk away. But Joseph does something quite different. He shows compassion and he shows gentleness. See, righteousness is not just right relatedness with God and your interpretation of his word or his law. Right relatedness also includes right relatedness with people who are made in God's image. And sometimes the legal thing and the loving thing 
aren't the same thing. As far as Joseph knew, he'd been wronged. He'd been shamed. He'd been broken by Mary's actions with a supposed another lover. But he would not make this an opportunity for revenge. After all, he had loved Mary before this news, and he's going to show extraordinary love after the news of her pregnancy. And the scripture says that Joseph, not wanting to disgrace Mary, planned to send her away quietly or secretly. Now what, what does that mean? Well, Joseph, who has privilege as a dominant male in society, I'm looking out here, I see some dominant males in society with some, some privilege. He used his privilege as a man to protect Mary from extreme shaming and the public divorce. And what he did is he chose to send her away quietly, which probably means he sought what's known as a Hillelite any cause divorce. It's kind of a catch-all category. Basically, he and Mary would go before a judge without any fanfare. They would go privately, and they would absolve the marriage. It's not that no one would hear about this. Every, I mean, everybody would know about it. Small towns, word travels, everybody knows that Mary's pregnant. It's not Joseph. They're getting a divorce. But the point is, is that there would be no public shaming. There would be no public investigation. And Joseph, by doing it this way, would lose that dowry, and he would incur that shame because in that culture, like it or hate it, it seems nasty from my perspective, but I'm trying not to be a, a 21st century and think that my thing's the best, because let's face it, our, our culture is not the best either. But what would happen is the other people would just look down on him with extreme shame. Say, you let her walk over you, buddy. Your family, your name has gone down a few ticks in the pecking order of things. From our perspective, from our perspective, I think Joseph does something extraordinarily kind. And from our perspective, we know that because Joseph protected Mary's honor and protected Mary's body, that Jesus, the Savior of the world, would be born through her. And from our perspective, we know that because of what Joseph did, it provided enough time for the angel to come and to speak to him and reveal to him what was really going on before acting rashly and dragging Mary out, the mother of Jesus, into the public square. He acted with discretion and patience and kindness. And I feel like, you know, we could almost just end, I could just drop the mic except for it's here and, uh, and it's expensive and I don't want to do that, but like, you could almost just be like, be better to each other. You know, you like, you could, you could get a lot there, but that would be good advice. Great advice, but not good news. So let's keep going. You know, what Joseph did would give enough time to understand that Mary had told the truth. And it would provide opportunity for Joseph to willingly and legally adopt Jesus which means that Jesus would be legally tied to the line of David, the messianic line, fulfilling all of these prophecies about one coming from the line of David. This is amazing. 
So much depends on Joseph acting righteously, but it's not how the original audience would have heard this story. You have to understand that no, or that to a first century Jew, a righteous man had only one option, and he should have followed the law of Deuteronomy and brought down justice on Mary. Joseph would have been expected to seek criminal justice against Mary because in doing that, he would be acting righteously toward his family, protecting their honor, right? Because there is a thing about honoring your father and mother. And by doing this, any cause divorce with Mary, he's bringing shame on them. So he would have been expected to bring criminal justice against Mary to protect his family honor, to support the, the honor and integrity of the, the idea of marriage. And by enforcing the seriousness of the covenant of marriage in God's word. So how is it that Joseph breaks all of these laws and interpretations of these laws, and Matthew, a Jewish person who's following Jesus, who is a Jewish man, and the author of all these laws, because he's God, I know, brain twist, how is it that Matthew calls Joseph righteous? And another translation of that word is just. How does he call him just when he seems to break all of these laws from the Torah and Deuteronomy. Now, this is where some fresh perspective on this story is helpful. And I drew a lot this time on scholar Kenneth Bailey, who argues convincingly that a first century Jewish man like Joseph would have known his scriptures. In fact, we've said this frequently, and a lot of you know this already, that by 13 at your, uh, your bar mitzvah, you, in the first century, you have already memorized Torah. In fact, you recite big chunks of it out loud at your bar mitzvah. So you've already got Torah. That's the first five books of the Bible. There's a lot in the first five books of the Bible. But he's talking about how it was so common to be, to, uh, to be hearing the prophets and the psalms were sung and chanted in worship on a regular basis, okay? So he's filled with all of the scripture. And Joseph would have been informed by the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, but he would also know the writings and the prophets. And Joseph is a student of scripture and has allowed scripture to form his understanding of justice. Kenneth Bailey suggests that Joseph acts in line with the character of God as revealed in the narrative sections of Torah, where, okay, so Torah, you've got all of these lists of rules, right? Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, where it's talking about all of these laws, what to do if someone commits adultery, what to do if your ox gores your neighbor, and all of this stuff. Here's what you do if you do that. But, I mean, the Torah is also full of stories, You've got Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. You've got uh, Adam and Eve. You've got Judah and Tamar. You've got Joseph the, going into uh, slavery in Egypt. And you, it, all of these incredible stories. And Bailey argues that, that when you read those stories, you know, you've got your, your tick of laws over here, your letter of the law, but then you've also got the God of the universe who gives us these laws looking at Abraham, who twice tries to, uh, to say his, his wife is his sister and like almost has her committing adultery herself with these foreign kings. And he, what happens when he gets out of these situations is God blesses their family more and more. 
and Isaac and Jacob and Judah, the liar, you know, or Jacob the liar and Judah, the, the one who sleeps with his daughter-in-law, thinks she's a prostitute. I mean, this is crazy. And, and God is blessing and blessing and forgiving and working with the raw material that he has. That's all God can work with, by the way, is you and me. We're the raw material. I don't see any perfect people when I look in the mirror. When I look at you, sorry. And I'm thankful that he works with the raw material. And so he, what, what Bailey is saying is like, yes, Joseph knows those letters of the law, but he sees God working in the real lives of people. And he's trying to put these two together. You know what that's calling? That, well, that's, called, that's called theology. Theologizing is when we have to wrestle with, you know, the writings and the, and the prophets and you've got uh, the Torah and you, how does it all come together? Because it's the same God. And he particularly points out that Joseph seems to be influenced by the prophetic passages known as the servant songs. There's four of them. They're in the prophet Isaiah. And they describe the gentle, humble character of God personified in a servant or a future person yet to be named. So consider this line about God's character in Isaiah 42. A bruised reed, think of a reed growing in a marshy place, it's sticking up straight, but a bruised reed has that, you know, that squishy area where it's just kind of tilted over. Maybe you're more used to cattails. That's I don't, we don't have reeds here very often. We're not in Egypt, but cattail, when you squish that thing and it flops over and it's just kind of like, Eh. He won't break a bruised reed, and a dimly burning wick he will not snuff out. He's faithful to bring forth justice. See, reeds in the ancient world were, were used for, for writing. They were used for basket weaving. You could even build boats out of them, and they're even used in construction of parts of homes. And the only thing that made a reed any good was its, its firmness, its ability to be woven and to keep its rigidity. And if you've got a bruised reed, the only way you could salvage that is to bust off that bruised part and hope you have enough of the solid part to, to use for anything. But this future servant, this agent of God, would not be like that. He's going to be gentle even with people who are so far gone in their sin that they appear to be useless and broken and he's not even, if there's any hope that they could be redeemed and salvaged, he's not gonna break that off. That's what that metaphor is about. In the same way in oil lamps, a dimming uh, a dimly burning wick was a wick not properly trimmed. And we have kind of fancy oil lamps today with the little spinner thing and it makes the wick go up. But in the ancient world, it was just like a clay. I don't even want to call it a pot. Some of these are so crude that there's just like folded clay like your four-year-old would make when they're trying to make you something at school. And this is like a hole and the wick sticking out. And if that thing burns too close, what would happen is oftentimes it would fall in and it could start a fire. And so people would have little pots of water and they'd snuff it out if it gets too low. And the metaphor here isn't that this person's a pyromaniac, it's that there's sometimes people feel like a smoldering wick in their life. You ever felt that way? Where you're just like barely holding on, and this servant, whoever this is going to be, is so kind and gentle, he's so bent on being able to redeem every last scrap of you if you're just at all willing, he won't snuff you out. And Joseph knows the law of Deuteronomy, but his sense of justice is informed by the whole of Scripture, and he sees the character of God in the fullness of its range. 
And he's come to see, too, that the holiness and righteousness can involve mercy and compassion. Because the Bible he reads, the one that we read, is a God full of compassion and gentleness. Are you with me? What's so fascinating, if you just stick with me in this one little idea, what's so fascinating to me is that the prophets, like Isaiah specifically, are writing under the inspiration of who? God, right? God's inspiration, human words, human style. But this is God's word, right? And this baby that Mary is carrying is, we've come to know, God. Jesus is God in the flesh. Stick with me. And so Joseph is actually influenced by the character of Jesus before Jesus is born in the flesh. Ryan, we got to write a book on this. This is like grandfather paradox-ish, but I, I, I don't know, I don't know. Joseph would raise this son because he was formed by the son's character before the son was revealed to him in human form. I think that's cool. It's my fresh perspective of the day. All right, two takeaways that I want to, to just bring to us as a way of summing up and closing. The, the, the first one is just the gentle character of Jesus. And the world, the world can be a really hard place, right? Like life can be really hard. We get beat up, disappointed, discouraged, injured in body, injured in spirit, and we learn, most of us, how to survive, like we learn how to get by, and usually that creates sharp edges on our personality, right? We know how to hide certain things, we know how to get through life, but it's really hard for most of us to be truly vulnerable, because we've been smashed up so many times, hold it close to the chest, right? That's why if you ever do therapy, <laughs> that's why you cry so much, because it's just like, ah, I haven't had, I haven't had this out. It's like, like, there's very few settings. Most of us feel vulnerable, you know, able to be vulnerable. And so we, we learn how to get by. This story appears to be about Joseph, but at its core, it's about Jesus. And Joseph is the vehicle through which Jesus is legally adopted into the line of David. But it's the character of Jesus, the character of God, who has influenced Joseph to make him the kind of man that could do what he did. Our God and Savior Jesus is the servant that Isaiah was talking about. He is forgiving. He is righteous in his right relatedness to people. And in the face of great personal injustice, and I'm talking about Jesus now as an adult, Jesus turns the other cheek when he's falsely accused, he turns his body over, but also his emotions, and he doesn't resist or draw on his rights or his power. He suffers insult and death on our behalf. And some of you come to this Advent season feeling like you're barely holding on, feeling maybe like a bruised reed or a smithering, smithering, smoldering wick about to go out. I mean, 
some of us just overextend with our responsibilities. We just keep taking on more and like, why? Now I can't let people down, right? Some of you, yeah, I know you know what I'm talking about. Uh, uh, others of you are grieving great loss in this season. Some of it's recurring. Some of you have lost new people just this year, and, and that's something that just comes up in the holidays. Uh, it could be that you realize you've been moving so quickly that the thought of slowing down and being reflective freaks you out because you wonder, can I even deal with all the stuff I'm running from with my overactivity? Whatever the source of your vulnerability, the good news of this story is that it reveals the real character of Jesus. And he's not here, according to the Bible, to scold us or to punish us or to haul us into the public square and teach us a good lesson. Jesus is the servant described in Isaiah who is gentle and competent to know what we need. He knows what needs to be done, and he goes about it with tenderness and care. So if you've been feeling vulnerable and weak, you can rest in Jesus. He's gentle and kind, and you will find rest for your souls. And this leads me to my second point. Jesus offers rest for the weary by comforting us in spirit, but he also comforts us through other people. Typically, ideally, through people who follow him, who are trying to be like him. You know, there's lots of ways that you and I get wronged in the world, and there's lots of legal things that we can do that are culturally acceptable that could make us feel better or help us to get revenge or help us to get the justice we're seeking. But that doesn't mean we have to do those things. We don't have to cancel people or to ghost people or to retaliate or to seek revenge. Joseph was formed by the God of Scripture. And in Joseph's day, there were lots of people who knew the words of Scripture, lots of people who could recite it a lot more than me and you. But not many would have been so thoughtful and obedient to the whole of Scripture like Joseph was. Because he wasn't just a reader, he was a learner. And Joseph sought to obey God by being true to the character of God that he saw in Scripture. I just leave us with a question, like, how are you being formed? How are, are we being influenced by the character of God? I, I, you're, you're off to a good start. Like, you're here. You're listening to the word of God. You're singing songs, influenced, steeped in the word of God. We're praying together. We, we're gonna take communion together. Like, this is a great start. This is one way to just be shaped and deformed is the regular practice of worship in community. Prayer and reading scripture and rereading and chewing on and mulling over scripture. It's a great way to, to begin to be formed in Christ's character. But my hunch is that Joseph sought the God of scripture, not just the scriptures themselves. He sought the one that scripture points to, not just seeking information about the word. And my guess is that when he heard the news about Mary, he felt like a bruised reed and a smoldering wick himself. And I think that he went to God and found comfort 
And in that place of comfort, he could pass it along to Mary and do better than he had to do. Sisters and brothers, how do we become more like Jesus? I think the first step is we have to receive his love. We have to get in touch with that broken reedness and that smoldering wickness that we feel and receive his love. We have to be truthful with our own weakness and vulnerability. And the good news is that Jesus came with the intention of rescuing us and transforming the world that we live in. Would you pray with me? Jesus, thank you for this good news of your character, of your trustworthiness, and for the invitation to receive your love and forgiveness, your healing, and your transformation. I release myself and my church family to you, Holy Spirit, and pray that you would meet each of us right in the crux of that place we need to be met. Thank you for knowing us so well and for your love. Amen.